You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit and philanthropic world. Today we have a very special guest, Catherine Earhart, the CEO and founder of Fairlight Advisors. Fairlight Advisors handles investment management and advice, primarily for nonprofit institutions and individuals with a focus on philanthropy and great investing. Previously, she spent about 20 years as an investment advisor with three firms, including BlackRock, Morningstar, and Alesco Advisors. Catherine serves on the board of several nonprofits, including Alternatives in Action and Project Giving Kids, which we'll learn about during the, the session here. She also founded the Social Action Investment Advisors, where I met her, the group that she sponsors and supports, which uh, involves nonprofit institutions and their trusted advisors. Catherine's a graduate of UCLA, Go Bruins, first football mm-hmm. game is this weekend against Hawaii. This goes off, the game will be over, and we will hopefully have won. She also, I learned, was involved in a crew at UCLA. I don't know whether you were just in a crew rowing or you were just watching crew. <laughs> I was rowing. I would ah. say I was at the time probably the smallest person on the team uh, in terms of strength and even height. And I learned today uh, from your bio on your website that you had a passion for Shakespeare. That's what you thought you were going to be doing in literature. That's right. I thought I was going to be an English professor, Gary, or maybe a famous writer. <laughs> well, one of my favorite ventures out of the Bay Area all those years was going up to the uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival which I probably did for about 10 years in a row with my wife and my daughter would go with us. It was, it's a great place to go see theater in general and Shakespeare in particular. I've always wanted to do that. That's on my bucket list. Uh, you're going to love it. And you live in Oakland? I live in an area called Redwood Heights. Yeah, right near the trails. Well, I lived in Piedmont Pines for 30 years, so I love the Oakland area. And I miss the trails uh, and all the redwood trees and everything. And but I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that we connected, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Share a little bit about your path from UCLA to where you are today in your investment world. First of all, thank you, Gary. I've always admired your participation in the group, just really your knowledge of philanthropy and your experience. So um, thanks for having me on the show. And in, with respect to my path, you know, it really, I fell into investing. It was kind of one of those things where I was working for two amazing women at Charles Schwab and company, actually, that was my very first job. And they said, you know, you need to go on the front lines. You need to work with people and you need to learn how this system works. You know, I thought that's not a bad idea. They said, go where the kind of the product or the service is delivered. And I got to learn on the front lines. And it was, I met with all walks of life, all different types of people, people who were philanthropic, people who were, you know, just saving for the first time at, you know, 55 years old. So it was kind of interesting just to see the path people had taken. And I stuck with it. I did all kinds of jobs within the world of finance. What really got me going, Gary, was um, the fact that I could, I, I actually was fundraising for a nonprofit back um, when I worked for BlackRock and amazing organization, microfinance uh, loans to women helping women start businesses who either had aged out of the workforce, 
were ineligible to just work for kind of a corporate infrastructure and needed their own gig. Um, we, I raised probably a quarter million dollars and with, this is with other group, other women through grants from the company through, you know, finding donors. So it was over a series of, you know, about three years. Unfortunately, two weeks after I got my boss at the firm to buy a table at their gala, they closed their doors. And that was really heartbreaking. They just lost funding. They just didn't, couldn't keep the funds going. And that took everyone by surprise. So I got into this business to serve nonprofits because I thought I don't want to ever see that happen again. Got your interest in nonprofits to begin with. You're, you obviously did some volunteer work. How did you get involved in, in nonprofits? So my um, parents were philanthropic. You know, I grew up in a service oriented community. Um, they taught, I went to Catholic school, just like in the Jewish faith, um, in the Catholic faith, there is this component of service and giving back. And so that kind of, I was always had that component to my life, um, but it wasn't actually until I met my current business partner that I really got interested in work and being on a board. She kind of inspired me. She joined a board and I, she got me involved in her organization. And then we both got involved in this microfinance organization. So that's really kind of ignited my passion. And when you did the microfinance world, was it only microfinance in the States or was it uh, foreign investment? It was only in the States um, and it was specifically targeted domestically uh, for women. Mm -hmm. Okay. Very and good. yeah. And tell us uh, about, about Fairlight. What exactly does Fairlight Advisors do? How long you been around? Uh, what's the prognosis? Yeah. So we, um, we've been around only uh, two years now. Um, but it, it, my business partner and I've been together working in this, in this since 2016. And then we knew each other, uh, since 2006 at BlackRock. So we've been working in this business since 2006, but Fairlight was established in 2019. And the idea was to really primarily serve nonprofits, foundations, and endowments, and then work with philanthropically minded individuals. And so the two kind of go nest well together. And the services you provide, obviously investment advisory, but what else do you do? What makes you different from someone having an advisor that's just a regular advisor? So I think it's really understanding the world of nonprofits. And I, I think it's, you know, it's important to really understand that there's a mission to serve. Uh, there's a specific focus area and really understanding the focus area and being able to help the organization plan for the future. And there's, there are some organizations that do want a sunset and you can work with them to kind of figure out a spend down strategy. Um, but most of the organizations we work with are direct service providers and they intend to be around, you know, 30, 40, whatever years in the future. So what I think separates us is having done our own volunteer fundraising, our own board work in terms of leadership, really understanding the nuts and bolts of how the organization, the ecosystem of right. the nonprofit world. Right. When I was at much larger firms, we just didn't have the time, nor were we um, really incented to understand the ecosystem. We were in there to give investment advice. That was it. You know, kind of be brief, be bright, be gone. We weren't really there to get to know the organization because you just, you're doing volumes of work. And you're kind of a cog in a much bigger wheel 
with Fairlight, we can be up close and personal and get to know the organization in a much deeper way. And so, you know, we know our clients. Now your business model, how do you bring revenue in? Is it, is it investment advisory fees or is it consulting fees or a combination of both? It is a combination of both. We, in some cases, we have organizations that aren't ready to really solidify their endowment. They're at the beginning stages. They are forming a capital campaign. They're working with a professional fundraising consultant. And so they really want us to come in and consult on, you know, help us write the right kind of investment policy statement, help us write the proper liquidity policy and help us work with our fundraising consultant to craft a a gift acceptance policy. Because I think you need three, really three sides of the coin in 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 all of those policies. You need the staff leadership input, you need the board input, and then you need the donor perspective. And so we can work with the organization. And we've done that for several different flavors of organizations, a small community foundation, we also worked with a school that's getting ready to do a big capital campaign. Their donors, prospective donors, have asked, you know, I, I really want to know that you guys have thought this through and have a liquidity and an investment policy. So as they give their money over, they know it's being well managed. Is the investment policy just basically asset allocation and concentrations, or is it also involved choosing what industries to avoid investing in? It can be all of the above. We're there. I kind of think of us as the Sherpa as you're going on an expedition of sorts. If you're climbing Machu Picchu or you're uh, climbing our local Mount Tam here in the Bay Area, I'm, you know, we're acting as your Sherpa. We're carrying the bags. We're guiding you along the way. But we're also, we don't have the answers to everything. And so we're there to help you sort of think through ideas and how you want to structure things. So as an example, we had one organization that has a lot of member, not a lot, but they have a certain cohort of donors in their network who work in the private private company space. So private equity venture. And they really wanted to talk about like, how can we incorporate that into the investment policy? Should we receive the gift of a private company? So it's, it's things like that, Gary. Um, you have to really think about governance in the investment policy. So who's in charge of what? What is the executive director's role? Uh, Because I think that, or the head of school or the um, board chair, the treasurer, the CFO of the organization, because I've seen some policies that really make it ambiguous for the staff. And I mean, you've been in leadership before for a nonprofit and to have your hands tied and not be able to make a decision is hard. So we want to be able to create a policy that allows the the leadership to make the decisions they need to make, but have the governance of the policy portfolio to, or the the policy to, to help guide you. You are listening to The Road to Philanthropy. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. You've worked on many sides of the philanthropic table. You've worked as a donor, you've worked as a volunteer, and you've worked as a professional working with nonprofits. Which do you find the most rewarding? Really tough choice between board work. So board work and donor go hand in hand, in my opinion. You're sort of doing both and working, having them as my clients. So that would be a tough one because I meet, I get to see different sides. Like I'll be working with a client and then on a, on the other side, I'm the board chair or I'm on the board 
and I get to kind of see a slightly different, it makes me better at both of my jobs because I can see, I can see the viewpoint of the staff person if I'm serving them as their professional consultant or the professional advisor. And then I can see a different viewpoint if I'm serving as the board chair. And so I think it just has made me more empathetic to a lot of different roles. Very good. So now today you're involved in a couple of nonprofits, which I mentioned in the intro. Tell us a little bit about those and how you got involved in them. In them. Alternatives in Action, um, I'm the board chair, and this is my last uh, year, my last, uh, I'm terming out at the um, in, as of September of next year. So nostalgic, because I'm kind of looking through everything and thinking, okay, this is the last time I'm going to be doing you know, this type of meeting or this kind of thing. And so um, I, I was recruited by um, a mutual friend who I was rolling off another board and I said, I really want to get involved in education. I want to have something local in Oakland. And it was like, uh, have I got the organization for you? So she recruited me over. Um, I like the idea of uh, the organization um, is a high school and it's an alternative high school. It's really meant for kids who um, really aren't having success at other schools and are at risk of dropping out or at risk of just falling through the cracks. You know, I, I'm trying to use kind of, uh, you know, asset framing language that's positive because these are kids that are resilient and resourceful. So they know they're smart kids. They just are stuck in a system that just isn't working for them. Right. Either they're working with administrators that are like, just... <laughs> go to school and shut up, you know, and these are kids that question the system that question authority sometimes, or just aren't passionate right now, aren't engaged. And so the thing I love about the school is it really tries to engage and meet the youth where they are. And so that was what really attracted me to the organization. And then project giving kids is I almost think of it as a mini version or like a, a kid's version of the social impact advisory group, because the idea is to teach kids about philanthropy. And I know your background, Gary, I mean, it's from where you have come from times that is, if you're part of a faith or you're part of an organization, you might be learning that from a very young age, but that's a subset of the American population. The rest is not necessarily learning that in school. And so the premise of the organization, the founder decided, she's like, we need a kinder world. We need a more empathetic world and we've got to start with the kids. And so they've built cause areas to teach young people about food insecurity, uh, you know, being unhoused um, from the viewpoint and the lens of a young person. And so they've developed curriculum and lesson plans all free on their website. So I'm just trying to spread the word because it's such an amazing set of materials that they've built that I just want everyone to know about it. I mean, schools, you know, Boy Scout troops, Girl Scout troops, youth organizations should all know about this. One of the things I, you know, I have some friends that I've had for maybe 30, 40 years now. Uh, I was trained in banking with a guy and he and his wife are very active in the right wing conservative world and uh, devout Christians, uh, born again Christians and the whole thing. And I said to them about three, four years ago, you know, help me understand what Trump is doing uh, and what the government is doing, and how does that coincide with feeding the homeless, taking care of the needy, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and it's a hard thing. People don't really understand that there are people out there that are struggling and, and how to go about helping them. 
I, in fact, I heard a, a, a ton of my nephew at lunch today. Uh, he's 40 years old. We were talking about some things. And, and uh, I said, I heard a rock song this morning from 1969. And the lyrics went along the lines of, tax the rich, feed the poor. And I went, <laughs> we were saying that in 1969, and we're still saying it today. You know, we haven't really learned a lot. Uh, so I'm glad that organization does it. That's very good. Yeah, Education. you haven't learned a lot, Gary. Yeah, it's... no, <laughs> it's a challenge on that. Mm -hmm. I, and on my end, uh, you know, I was kind of like one of those who we were talking before the podcast started about my twin brother and I, and he was the great student and the academic. And, and while we're both very successful and, and, and intellectually challenged and we keep learning and learning and learning, I was not a school guy. I mean, I was, I was, uh, I learned from the streets a lot more than I learned in the classroom. I was bored very easily. And I could see that, you know, in students that you're talking about that don't fit into the model uh, in education. Yeah, it's hard for them. Tell me about uh, your social investment advisory group. I know I've been part of it now for about a year, uh, SIAG. I always kind of forget the, the initials. What is it exactly and, and how does that uh, pull people together? Yeah, we, we actually have been thinking about rebranding, Gary, because it is hard for everyone keeps calling it SIAG or SIAG. And I was like, oh, that <laughs> doesn't sound very good. But the premise is wonderful. Um, instead of calling us a nonprofit affinity group or you know, a group of nonprofit consultants, we really wanted to get to the heart of what we're all trying to do, which is create social impact. Because um, people hear the word nonprofit or not-for-profit and they think, oh, they don't know how to run a business because they can't make a profit. <laughs> you know, people who just don't understand. And so it's a basically, it's just a status, right? It's an IRS status that says you're exempt from taxes. Other than that, you can function like any other company um, and, you know, the idea is that you invest back into the organization that you're providing direct services, or if you're doing more policy and advocacy, you know, you're focused on that. But um, the idea was really, we wanted to, to be able to really spread the word and yell from the mountaintops, hey, donors, hey, board members, hey, government policymakers, we need to invest in nonprofits and we need to allow them to invest in, their, in themselves. Because I think so often, I mean, I had a donor say to me, this was recent in the last three years, the donor said, oh, I could never ask my friends to fund uh, an endowment or something where it's not going to a program. Like I only want to fund programs and I only want you know, my friends to fund programs. And I'm thinking, well, who, and I asked him, I said, well, who's going to deliver the program if you, you know, if you're not funding that? And he's like, well, that's the government's problem. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay, like, do you hear, do you hear yourself? Because he was a business person. And I'm thinking, uh, yeah, yeah. I raised money for the Technion, the Israel Institute of Technology for many years, This is a, you know, the cutting edge of, uh, it's the MIT of Israel. And we always cut out 7% of every donation went to overhead. And every once in a while, you have a donor that said, I don't want my money going to overhead. Well, you know, how are we going to market? How are we going to, we couldn't, I could not be talking to you if they didn't pay my salary or all that good stuff and doing the workshops and doing the education and bringing the, the students from Israel to t tell you about their work. And that is a, a challenge in, in that, that sector for sure. Well, I, I think it's made me become a better board member, a better consultant and a better donor, because now when, when I started really working in this space, you know, six, seven years ago, 
I started to realize all the work that went into it. And when you starve an organization of resources, of um, new technology, you're hampering them. You're hampering their ability to deliver good service. So I would like for the social impact group to really get louder about the need to kind of reinvest. So if someone wanted to to look into getting involved in the the, uh, social impact advisor group, how would they go about doing that? So we... um, we, our meetings are no, no cost and we have a newsletter. Um, they can visit fairlightadvisors.com and on our services menu, there is a social impact advisory group service. And you can go on that web on the website in, in that service and look for ways to sign up for the newsletter and to sign up for events. In your background of education and then going into the, into the investment world, the nonprofit world, who are some of your mentors? Who are the most uh, Im- impactful on your work? I would say some good, really good mentors. I feel like there's so many. Did you have a mentor? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, I was thinking, actually, Gary, you're one of the people that when we have our meetings, you always have some kind of insight, like a story or an example. Um, So I really appreciate that, by the way. I think another really good mentor has been Nicole Kayak, who's at the San Francisco Foundation. Mm she used to be at the East Bay Community Foundation, and she kind of a deep expert on philanthropic giving and planning and investing according to your values. Another person is a woman by the name of Betsy Strong. She was the one, she's an investment advisor. She works with more with individuals and women and businesses, but she loved being able to consult with her clients about their giving. Like she just had a natural affinity to talk about philanthropic planning. So that was kind of a mentor of mine because I would ask her a bunch of questions and ask her how she, you know, worked with her clients. Um, she's, she's just really kind of somebody that's been in the business a really long time and, and provided that level of mentorship. One of my previous guests, Lisa Gerwich, who's with uh, Delivering Good, she's the CEO. She's been doing a, a group of roundtables on women in philanthropy. Uh, and the importance and the impact of women. How do you see that over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, uh, uh, women involvement in, in successful businesses and then being a philanthropist? I have been impressed. So a, a lot of our clients tend to be women or um, come to us because they're in a couple relationship and want to work with a, a woman advisor. And I've been impressed. All of them are very philanthropic. Um, they want to give kind of in that threefold area of time, talent, and treasure. And so I appreciate that because I think people want to know, they kind of want to know what's being done with their money. They want to get a little more involved. They want to have their fingers kind of in the pie. Um, so I think I've seen as women accumulate more wealth, there is a desire to give back, to give a portion of that. Some, some are saying, you know, I'm not going to leave much to my kids. I want to be able to, you know, I'm going to enjoy my retirement. I'm not going to worry about leaving them a legacy of wealth. Um, and I'm going to give some of it away. And I so had a, I, a conversation with my daughter recently. I'm actually tomorrow going to sign my new trust documents uh, uh, for my family. And I said to my daughter, let me go over what I want to leave to charities in my estate, you know, before we talk about you. And she goes, well, I don't, whatever you want to do, dad is fine. 
because you're very committed and all that. But so I want you to know what it's about. I want you to know how much I'm giving away and what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. For me, you know, the, the greatest thing was about six months ago, she's been struggling and getting her career off the ground in the television business and been doing pretty well the last 18 months and said to me one day, I'm going to start making some philanthropic gifts on a monthly basis. Can I talk to you about who I want to give money to and, and help me set it up? And that was very re rewarding to know You're my 29-year-old is doing the right thing. That's awesome. That is really, and this is your daughter that, yeah. that said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. To me, that's like almost the the validation that we're as parents looking for. It's like they find, they listened, you know, <laughs> even if it takes, you know, 18 months or 18 years, you know, it's like they listened. And how many children do you have? What's your family I've look like? I have two sons, um, 17 and 12. And, you know, I've been getting them involved in, in my philanthropy. Um, I think what, what's interesting is it is starting to seep in a little bit. My young, my, when I started getting involved with project giving kids, my 17 year old is a little too old for that. He, he kind of slithered away <laughs> like, uh, I'm not interested, but the younger one did do some, some activities with me and he's gotten involved and, you know, he's already done his own service projects. He's boy scout, but you know, it'll be interesting to see as they get older, if they, if they develop a, a philanthropic giving strategy. Yeah. I remember when I was on the board of SF food bank years and years ago, my daughter was a young, you know, lower school student. And we went on a n number of occasions to the, the warehouse and separated fruit for three hours and she never knew there were so many kiwi you could get in a crate, <laughs> separating the good <laughs> ones from the bad ones. But, uh, you know, they have to get started somewhere, as I always said that. They yeah. do. Uh, let and, me and go. Uh, I, I, I meant to ask you, are they going the Catholic school route also, or are they in the in the public or private sector, your kids? So the the younger one is still in Catholic school. Um, the older one is in public school. And he. what's interesting is he actually ended up going to alternatives in action, which is the school that I, and I had been serving on the board there for several years already, but he was one of the kids that I wasn't sure he was going to finish high school. He was really struggling. Right. And really like you were saying, um, Gary, not super academically interested, not it's, he's smart. He just couldn't focus and pay attention. So, um, He's embracing it. He's now seeing like, hey, mom, you were super involved with the school. So yeah, I'm, I'm, he's, you know, so now I'm kind of seeing it now from a parent's perspective, in addition to a, a donor and a board member. So it, it's, it's been interesting. I mean, it's still new. He's, he just started the school, but right. Um, so I'm glad I've gotten a flavor of both. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I kind of woke up yesterday. My daughter was 29. I thought she was still in high school, you know, but <laughs> times change. They grow fast, as they say. They do. So she's, uh, she, yep. She's at that point in her career, 29. That's kind of when your career, you start to move up and either you see fewer women in the, in, you know, as you move up the ladder, um, at least that's what I saw. And I'm worried. We just had have had a bunch of women leave the workforce. I hope they come back at some point. I know the pandemic's been hard, but in many sounds ways, like yes. she's... What are your top priorities over the next few years? What are your goals that you want to accomplish? Primarily, I want to get... So one, one thing I want to accomplish as a company is I want to set up our giving strategy as a company. Right now, we do a couple of sponsorships, um, but I, I would like to um, create a, almost a give back strategy of our um, revenue. So 
we got to get to a certain threshold before we can do that. But that's, that's something I really want to do is, is set it up to do one of those, um, uh, conscious capitalism type of not mantras, but, but where you're giving back a certain amount and you're giving locally, um, or nationally or even Mm -hmm. internationally. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one thing I want to do. So that's, that's kind of a mixture of my philanthropic and business. Um, I also would like to serve more nonprofits with our risk, kind of our risk management and liquidity policy services. I see more opportunity for nonprofits to develop more structure around that so that Mm -hmm. when an event like the pandemic happens, people have some reserves. I mean, luckily, I think a lot of nonprofits were eligible for PPP loans. And so that helped actually them um, develop a little bit more reserves, but I'd like to see more nonprofits adopt that, that process and that mindset. Um, and then third is uh, grow. We'd like to hire a couple of employees. So that's on the radar over the next 12 Very months. Good. Great. And when you're not working, uh, what do you like to do? Well, I love to hike and I'm looking at the photo behind you and I'm thinking I've hiked the Marin headlands, but not in a long <laughs> time. So I, uh, I've been doing, I don't know if you're familiar with the all trails app. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not. It's, it's, it's an app that's become super popular in the pandemic. Um, and it's the opportunity to, um, just kind of map out a hike and look at the miles and look at the difficulty. And it's kind of like a, it gamifies a little bit hiking. So I've been doing that and I love to get out and we're so lucky to live here in California because we have amazing trails. Right. And you actually, you know, living in the East Bay, I loved walking the East Bay Regional Park District for years and whether it was uh the the river trail uh from chabot all the way out to the oakland hills or whether it was the redwood trail i mean and then sibley where the volcanic rocks are there's so many good trails in the bay area and that's just the east bay not even (laughs) talking about mount tam and those areas you know absolutely you're right it's just the east bay and we have so many I've driven down, this was a couple months ago to the Pacifica and did some trails over there. And I was like, oh my God, I forgot this existed. I mean, you could even do one in San Francisco too. I mean, we have Land's End Trail there and yeah, we're super lucky. Well, great. And uh, other than hiking, uh, you get, you still involved in athletics, crew, anything like that still or not? Oh, I wish I could do crew. I wish I had time for that. Um, I'm not at it's some, it's funny. I've been trying to decide, should I take up golf? Should I take up tennis? I haven't found a sport that I, I want to get into. So trying to decide if I want to do something social or something more solo. Well, one of um, the pleasures of, uh, of hiking is being outdoors and being able to enjoy the environment around you, you know, for sure from that. Yep. So let me finish up by saying, is there anything I forgot to ask you? I missed that I should have asked you. I would say one thing that people don't know about me is um, I have traveled to some exotic places in the world. The two crazy places I'll mention, um, I went to Tuaya, which is really the tip, the end of the world, so to speak, wow. down in Argentina. And then I've been to this little tiny island off of Guinea-Bissau, which is a country on what in West Africa. And that was sort of the furthest thing you could get from sort of anybody, any, it was not touristy. I was there visiting somebody in the Peace Corps and and that was kind of a wild ride. And then I lived in Iran before the revolution. 
that's a story for another podcast. <laughs> definitely, definitely is. Well, thank you so much for being part of the podcast, uh, The Road to Philanthropy. We really are happy that you're with us. And I really enjoy being part of the Social Investment Advisory Group. And I look forward to the sessions. I just have to stop booking other appointments on those Thursdays that, that they meet. I yeah. missed the last couple and I want to get back into it. So thank you very much. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in the coming months. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.